Again, I'm Pastor Corey, and it is a blessing to be with you today. Uh, For those of you that know me well, you know that I am a pretty avid sports fan. And over the years, I've followed some different athletes and some different uh, sports organizations as a fan, whether it be football or whether it be baseball. And one of the things that grabbed my attention was a documentary special put together by ESPN, uh, a number of episodes in a series called 30 for 30. Maybe you've heard of it, but there's 30 different uh, mini-movies per se about specific organizations or athletes that they chronicle their career, they chronicle uh, certain aspects of their life, and I've always found many of them fascinating. And one particular episode of 30 for 30 was one called Titled Broke. And what it did is it looked at athletes after retirement and what their financial realities that they faced were. Uh, And in this episode called Broke, uh, a statistic jumped out of that that just caught my attention. That 78%, catch that, 78% of former NFL players that have been retired for two years are either filing bankruptcy or in financial distress. 78% of NFL athletes that after retiring after two years are either filing for bankruptcy or in financial distress. The the NBA does a little bit better that after five years of retirement, NBA players are at 60% of either bankruptcy or financial distress. When you think about that for a moment, you're thinking of individuals that have it all. Multi, multi-million dollar salaries just at young ages. Here we're having athletes that are living a life of luxury, living a life with everything that we could imagine. And within a matter of years, two, three, losing everything. Multiple homes, multiple cars, luxury, being lost in a moment. For me, it's kind of mind-blowing. But can you think of anything that's really worse than losing everything when you've had it all? I can. I can think of something worse, and it's actually something that I believe every one of us in this room have dealt with at one season or another. And it's not just the issue of being broke. It's a reality that many of us have dealt with in the season or in life of being broken. What does it look like to be broken? See, it moves far beyond the realities of our finance. It moves into the realities of our emotional life, our our spiritual life, our physical lives. It moves into areas that for many of us are very uncomfortable addressing what it really looks like to be broken. And this morning, I want to invite you to look with me into the book of John, into a, a passage where we see a man that has been broken for years And how our king, how our healer speaks into his life with such authority that I believe speaks to each and every one of us here. But what does it look like to be broken? It's a question that rings off the page for me that we see here in John chapter 5. Here in verse 2 it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. The sheep gate was a place in which they would walk sheep through into this place of, of worship where they would sacrifice the sheep. And here we see them walk, uh, here in Jerusalem, at this sheep gate, there's this pool. A pool called Bethesda, which in Aramaic or Hebrew would translate out as house of olives or house of mercy. Here at this pool called Bethesda, they had five porticos or five covered porches. And in verse 3, it describes it deeper by saying that in these, these porches, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind lame, paralyzed. 
See, Corey, how sick were they? Well, as we walk through this passage, you'll see that they're so sick that they can't even recognize that the great physician is among them. They're so broken in ways that they can't even realize that the very individual that walked into their midst, the individual that had the power and the ability to speak to the very core of their brokenness, they couldn't even recognize. It's a question that rings out for me, what does it really look like to be broken? Have you ever asked yourself, what does it look like for me to be broken and realize my need, my deepest need for healing? Because see, when I look at this, and just a, a basic observation that I see is that they use the word multitude because I do believe there's a mass of people here that are, that are looking for something that they themselves desperately want, but yet they find themselves in Jerusalem. Wait, when, when you begin to look at this, you begin to realize that this was a place of peace. Jerusalem was known as a place of peace, but here's a multitude of people that had no peace. Now, Jerusalem was known as a place of hope, and yet these people had no hope. Jerusalem was known as a place of blessing, and here we have a multitude of people that just didn't believe they were blessed. And yet they came day after day after day. But for me, it begs the question, how many of us walk into this place week in and week out needing to understand mercy and hope and joy and healing at a deeper level and yet we come in not even realizing that you sit in a place of mercy? That you come in each and every week understanding that in our midst dwells a powerful, merciful, big God that desires to do a work in your life beyond your wildest imagination and dreams. And yet we so often forget and fail to see that the great physician, the great healer, the great merciful, mighty God is in our midst week in and week out. What does it look like to be broken? What does it look like to know mercy at a deep level in our hearts? What does it look like to be a Christ follower and spiritually and emotionally and physically find ourselves broken? How do we begin to see that our circumstances and our environment hold no, no bondage over us? I like how Paul deals with the church in Galatians when he writes in Galatians chapter 5, there in verse 1, he says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. But in context, you understand that this verse is dealing with the, the argument or the debate that's taking place in Galatia that where they're looking at the old law and the new law and he's saying, hey, look, the old covenant is just that. It's the old covenant because the new covenant that was ushered in by the blood of Jesus Christ releases you from the bondage of the old ways of sacrifice and works. And you can now know our God in a personal way through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's saying to him, hey, you're free. Stay free. You don't have to go back to an old way of knowing the king. You can know the king in a deep and personal level. Stay free. What does it look like for us to wrestle with the reality that we have been called and set apart? That even as he speaks to in 2 Timothy, very clearly that our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do we live in that promise? 
Do we embrace that to such a level that we can walk in our daily lives knowing that we are children of the King and a King who loves me deeply? What does it look like to be broken? We see this page after page in the Bible that there are people wrapped up in hurt and in pain. Maybe they don't even know it. Just how far they've allowed their circumstance to define them. Ever been in a rut? Anyone know how to define a rut? Growing up, my dad used to define a rut this way. That a rut is simply a grave with both ends kicked out. That a rut is simply a grave with both ends kicked out. And yet how often do we find ourselves as children of the king in a spiritual rut? An emotional rut? Physical rut? That maybe for some of you today, you're just doing church. Today, you're just here because this is where I am on Sunday. This is what I do. Maybe for some of you, you find yourself seeking here today, maybe for the very first time, that you found your life to be in such a place that you're just simply tired of doing the same thing day after day after day. What does it look like to be broken? To be in a rut that begins to define us because as I go and I answer that question that what, it, what does it look like to be broken, I have to define that word. What does broken really mean? And I love how the dictionary fleshes this out so clearly by saying broken is defined as an adjective having been fractured or damaged and no longer in one piece or in working order. Something that has been rejected, defeated, or in despair. Broken. See, as I continue to read in this passage, understanding that there's this multitude of hurting, broken, blind, lame, paralyzed people. In verse 3, it goes on to give us a deeper, a deeper picture that says that in these, in the, in the multitudes here of sick people that are blind, lame, and paralyzed, it says that they're waiting for the moving of the water. They're waiting for the moving of the waters. See, as I process questions going through this, I have to ask the question, what are we waiting for? I mean, what are we really waiting for to understand at a deep level the love my king has for me? The purpose that he has for my future, the joy that he has in store for my heart and my mind, the freedom that he purchased on a cross for you and for me. What are we waiting for to know the goodness of our God? Maybe for some of you here this morning, you're waiting for some emotional spirit to engulf and overpower you for you to really believe that He loves you. Maybe for some of you, you're waiting for something that happened to a friend to happen to you for you to really believe He's good. Maybe for some of you, you're waiting for someone to have a better debate or a better argument for the proof of Jesus Christ for you to act on the fact He died for you. Maybe some of you are waiting on a handout. You're waiting for someone else to come along and and pick you up and, and give you what you think you need for you to begin to move forward again. What are we waiting for? What are we really waiting for to the point that in our waiting, in our circumstance, in our in our pain, we've almost allowed it to define us. 
Because the individual that Jesus begins a conversation with had tied himself to his pain. What have you tied yourself to? It reminds me of two hunters that were making their way through the woods and they came along what they thought was an abandoned farm. And as they began to walk through the farm, they noticed that all the buildings were in disarray and all the, uh, the realities of the structures were just totally broken down and they saw some old cars and car parts and tractors and the only thing that gave it really any semblance of a working farm were just a few chickens that were pecking on the ground and a goat that was walking back and forth. And as they began to walk through the property, they walked up on this old well, and they looked down and couldn't see any water. And one of the hunters said to the other, I wonder how deep it is. And the other said, well, the only real way to tell is to throw something down. And so they turn around, and they see this old car transmission, and they both pick it up, and they drop it over the side of the well, and down it went. And they waited, they waited, until they heard something behind them, and they turned and saw this goat, head down, horns pointed, running straight for them. And at the last minute, they both jump out of the way, and down the well the goat went. And luckily, they both looked at each other thinking that was close. And about that time, a farmer began to walk out of one of the old buildings. And they approached the farmer and simply said, Hey, would you by any chance give us permission to hunt on your land? And the farmer said, That would be fine with me. But as he looked around, he noticed and asked, Have you by any chance seen my goat? And the hunters looked at him and said, yeah, that goat just attacked us and charged after us. And man, we barely got out of the way. You need to tie that thing up. The farmer scratched his chin and looked at him and said, well, I don't understand. I thought I had it tied to an old transmission. It begs the question, what are we tied to? What are we tied to that at such a level in our lives, it takes us wherever it chooses to go. It defines us to the point that, that we live in it. We live in the bondage of it. We live in slavery to it. We live with the reality that whatever has happened to me or whatever's in my past, I allow it to keep me tied to it. And in this moment, as Jesus begins to see the masses that are waiting for this movement of the water... In verse 5, it goes on to say, And a man, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in this condition for a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? I read that, and it begs another question for me as I walk through this passage of how long is 38 years? How long? It's 38 years. Uh, most of us here this morning would define 38 years and its length probably through what's happening over that period of time. Uh, most of us would say that time moves at a different pace depending on what we're doing. Uh, for the Bushonic household, the summer can't go fast enough with the kids out of school. And yet they're I love this last week. My wife said the, the last day of summer is both the longest week of the year and the shortest at the same time. A thousand and one things to get done, but can't wait till they get back. Many of you that maybe you work six, seven, eight months before you get a 10-day vacation. And two weeks before the vacation just creep day by day. And on the 10th day of vacation, you're like, really? 
I'm going back to work already? That was way too short. But 38 years of being sick and crippled in the same place. Day after day after day, returning to this place, hoping that maybe tomorrow, hoping that maybe today, something might be different. 38 years of being sick and confined to this space of watching other people that are sick, lame, hurting, and paralyzed. 38 years. And what does Jesus do? He asks a pretty simple question. Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? He didn't ask the man, hey, do you recognize you're sick? It's been 38 years. He didn't walk and say, hey, how you doing? It's been 38 years. He didn't ask him what he thought about being sick. It's been 38 years. Do you like being here? Hey, Jesus, been here 38 years. You know how long I think 38 years is? It's long enough to stop believing. I think 38 years is long enough for someone to begin to believe there's really no future for me. There's really no reason to have any more hope than what I used to have and what I have today. Because you know what? I've been sick 38 years. 38 years is long enough to begin to define him as simply a cripple. That's simply a hurting, broken individual. Hey, mister, it's the way you've always been. It's the way you'll always be. 38 years. 38 years of being the guy that's lived in bondage of his reality that he wakes up to each and every day. But yet it's no different of a question that Jesus asks you and I today. Hey, Corey, how long do you want to live in bondage to that issue? Hey, Corey, how long are you going to go before you deal with that reality in your past? Hey, Corey, how long are you going to let that issue define you? Corey, how long are you going to recognize that I came to set you free from that? Corey, how long? But I think what's happening in this particular passage and in this question that Jesus asked, do you want to be well? I think there's a deeper question that you and I have to wrestle with today. Then the question that Jesus asked this man at the core of his heart that this question resonates through, the question I also believe we have to wrestle with is, do we believe his promises? That when we look into God's word, do we believe the promises of our king? Do we believe those promises that define his character? Are they true? Because see, you don't have to go far, even in the book of John, that when you turn to John chapter 8, verse 32, it says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? It will set you free. And just four verses later, in chapter 8, verse 36, it says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do we believe that? You're saying, hey, Corey, you mean... You mean I, I as, I as an individual that has come to a place of knowing Jesus and yet I still war against this flesh and war against the realities of, of my mind and my thoughts and, and the struggles that I deal with day in and day out, you're telling me, Corey, I can really be free from that. I'm not telling you. God's Word tells us. 
He's saying that in the Spirit, in knowing Christ, and knowing the salvation that's been given to us, you can be free indeed through the Son of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the church of Corinth. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. We read it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, about understanding that we don't have to be slaves to that past yoke, that past burden. But even Paul talks further to the church at Ephesus. And he writes the church at Ephesus here in chapter 3, verse 12, in Ephesians 3, 12, saying, In him, meaning Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Do you want to get well? Do you, do you really want to know freedom? Do you really want to get well? I think it's the same question that Jesus is asking us today. Or do you, do you really want to be free? But understand what happens in this conversation that Jesus, Jesus begins to speak into this man's life. He asks him a question. And in this moment, he says here in verse 7 that the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man to help me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. He doesn't answer the question. What does he do? He gives an excuse. The question I have to look at as I process through this passage is, what's my excuse? What's my excuse for not really being free? I love what Dr. William Glazer says. He's the founder of the Reality Therapy Clinic. And he writes this, that healthy people do not make excuses. Healthy people do not make excuses. And for some of you, like, ah, I don't really make excuses. How long was the last time you were late to an appointment, maybe at the doctor's office or somewhere else, and you walked in huffing and puffing, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, the traffic was a beast. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I had to take a phone call, and, and I took that phone call, and I'm sorry, I'm running late. Oh, I'm sorry, there was a crisis at work, and, and just I'm sure none of the men in here have ever come home late for dinner with an excuse. Am I the only one that has done that before? I was so bad even as a child growing up that when I was late for dinner coming home from a friend's house, I could walk through the door and my mom would say, what is it this time? But how many of us have ever heard someone walk in late for an appointment and say, I'm sorry, I'm just incapable of running my own schedule. I'm so sorry, I'm just incompetent with running time. I'm sorry, I, I just, I'm really bad at managing my own time. Healthy people don't make excuses. And in this moment, as Jesus speaks into this man that's been laying here for 38 years, he comes with with this answer, with this excuse to Jesus' question that it's someone else's fault. I've been here 38 years. It's because of what those other people are doing before me that's caused me to be here for 38 years. Blame goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, Adam and Eve... They were quick to say, hey, I don't know whose fault it is, but it's not mine. She made me do it. Serpent made me do it. What's our excuse? Corey, I know I'm an addict, but hey, you know what? I could stop anytime I want to. Corey, 
I know I wrestle with lust, but you know what? That's just that's the way I'm wired. Everyone else does it. Corey, I wouldn't be so angry if people would just listen to me. Every parent in the room knows what that like. What's that like? I wouldn't be angry if my kids would just listen. I now, as a parent, fully understand what I used to laugh at and get confused at as a child when my parents would say, this is why we can't have nice things. (laughs) I get it. Corey, I wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for... Our culture reinforces it day in and day out. Just even last month. If you watch any kind of news or you follow anything about what's happening in our culture, uh, many of you saw that a major city in Detroit filed bankruptcy. And and one of the headlines that caught my attention was that Detroit filed bankruptcy and and the response to bankruptcy and what I read was, this wasn't our fault, it was decisions that were made years ago. Folks, every one of us understand in our life that we made decisions long ago and we have to come to the point of saying, what are we going to do about it now? What am I willing to do to be honest enough with my life and with my relationship with Christ that I'm willing to deal with it now and no longer live in what's defined me by decisions of my past? That I am willing to be honest enough to not place the blame or make excuse, but I'm willing to hear the question that my king is speaking into my life saying, I wish to be well. I don't want to do this anymore. But while they're coming, another steps down before me. Who are we blaming today? What's my excuse? Corey, it's just the city I live in. Corey, I'm waiting for Pueblo to do something for me. Corey, I'm waiting for my family to take care of me. Corey, I'm waiting for my church to do something. It was a simple question. Do you wish to be well? 38 years. 38 years, this individual has been treated like a simple beggar on the side of the street. Uh, For 38 years, this guy's been kicked out of the way. This guy's been spat on. This this guy's been cursed at. This guy has had to depend on someone to bring him a simple meal or to be picked up to go to a place to sleep. This guy has depended on someone else to provide for him for 38 years. And it makes me ask a fifth question. How amazing would it be to walk again? How amazing would it be to walk again? 38 years. He's dependent on people his whole life. 38 years. And in verse 8, Jesus says to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, when I read through that, I'm like, man, this will preach. But do you realize how anticlimactic this was? Jesus didn't say, everyone, crowds, hush, hush, hush. Look here, we're about to do something amazing. He didn't walk over and pick up this individual and like an after-school special in slow motion, walk to the pool of Bethesda and lay him in. He didn't call attention to anything. He simply spoke into the man's life and says, hey, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. 
There wasn't any fanfare about it. There wasn't something that was, that was amazing for the crowds to watch. He simply spoke into the man's life. But he says, get up and pick up your what? Your pallet. What was a pallet? To this individual, a pallet was the very thing that made him comfortable to live in his misery. The pallet was the very thing that he returned to day in and day out that made him comfortable in his sickness and in his brokenness. And what he was saying to what he was saying to this man in this moment was pick up the very thing that you've allowed to make you comfortable in your misery. Deal with it. Now I like what uh, uh, J.P. Morgan, not J.P. Morgan, J. Campbell Morgan, J.P. Morgan probably has no discussion on the matter. Um, G. Campbell Morgan, he was a, a, an evangelist in Britain in the early 1900s, and G. Campbell Morgan had this to say. He, he puts it like this, in order, he's dealing with the palate, in order to make no provision for a relapse. What Jesus understood is that if this man wasn't careful, he would begin to question his healing and return to the very place tomorrow that Jesus was trying to set him free from. He was saying, in order for you not to begin to think that this healing isn't complete, deal with the very thing that's allowed you to be comfortable in your misery. Burn your bridge. For some of us, we have to look at the very thing that we've allowed to define us and begin to realize no more. That some of us, we return to our homes and we throw out our pornography and we throw out our addiction, we throw out our alcohol and we begin to define ourselves no longer by what's held us in bondage. And we begin to say to ourselves, but you know what? I need to take another step forward. I need to define someone else in my life that I can come alongside of and they can allow me to leave that behind once and for all. Maybe some of us have to find our way into a life group and begin to surround ourselves with other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ that we can allow them to understand what we're trying to be free from and truly move beyond it. Because Jesus said, walk. He didn't say just stand up and stay there. He said, get rid of the pallet and move. Walk. Now, I don't know that I can fully grasp this moment. I don't know if he jumped up and, and hugged Jesus, embraced him, or if he started doing a hallelujah dance in the middle of the pool of Bethesda. I don't know. But Jesus said, walk. Get a little closer. Corey, take a step. Take another one. Corey, move beyond what has held you here for so long, for 38 years. For some of you, it's a relationship that you've allowed people in your life to continue to speak lies of hurt and bitterness and resentment over you for so long that some of you might have to say, no longer to that. I will no longer allow that relationship to be part of who I am as a child of the King. I will choose to move beyond those words of discouragement and move beyond those words of lies that I've allowed to take root in my mind like the fiery arrows the enemy shoots and lobs into our thinking. Hey, Corey, you're not really good enough. Corey, you'll never really match up. Corey, you're worthless. And I will choose to say no longer because my king has called me to get up, get rid of what's made me comfortable, and move into relationship with him. I won't do this any longer. I'm not going to live like this any longer. I'm not going to be held in bondage to this any longer. But the last question I see in this is, there's a multitude of people here. There are a lot of hurting and broken people in this passage that Jesus has seen. He recognizes, but he deals with this individual specifically. 
He speaks into one man's life specifically, and we see it page after page in the ministry of Jesus' life. That he very rarely ever dealt with the masses or the large crowds. We see Jesus having personal and intimate conversations with people. And let me say today, I am so thankful he had a personal conversation with me. That I remember as a 12-year-old individual sitting in uh, Harvest Community Church in Watauga, Texas, listening to Pastor Olin Collins preaching, that at the end of that service, I believed with everything within me that God was having a personal conversation saying, Corey, today is the day I desire to enter into relationship with you. And I remember turning to Jamie Lasseter, my brother's girlfriend, who was sitting beside me, and I looked at her and I said, Jamie, I don't want to go up there alone. Will Will you go with me? She stepped out of that pew and we walked down that aisle into that service. And I remember Pastor Olin Collins handing me off to a gentleman by the name of John Woods. And I remember John Woods because he was like 6'8". I came up to like right here on him. And John Woods took me out into a side room and sat down and opened up God's Word and began to show me what it looked like to know Jesus Christ personally. And let me tell you, My God desires to have a personal conversation with you. He is asking you a question on a personal level that's not necessarily for the masses. He's asking you today, do you desire to be whole? Do you want to be well? Do you want to know Him in an intimate, personal relationship that can set you free from the very things that have defined you for the last 38 years? Do you want to be well? Today, it's a personal question. This isn't about what other people are going to do in the next few minutes. This isn't about what others may think. This is between you and our God. And I'm so, so thankful He cares at that kind of level with you and I. He knows your past, He knew it the day His Son died on the cross. And He said, I still choose you. I still sent my son to seek and to save those who are lost. Today, regardless of where you are, whether it's been 38 years, whether it's been two weeks, if today you're saying, Pastor Corey, I I just want to be free. I want to be whole again. I want to be well. I want to know joy and I want to know peace again. I want to know what it's like to, to have the happiness and the purpose that my God intended for me. Today, you don't have to walk out those doors the same way you walked in. Today, you don't have to leave thinking to yourself that this is just simply as good as it's ever going to get. He's saying, do you want to be well? In just a few moments, our prayer partners are going to make their way down here to the front. And as soon as we're through praying, we're going to ask that if there's anyone in this room that needs someone to pray with them, someone to speak over them a word of hope, a prayer of healing, a prayer of joy, And we're going to ask you to step out and simply make your way forward and allow us to just do simple ministry in your life with a simple question, do you want to be well? I believe our God is still a God of healing. We believe here that our God still operates the same way He did 2,000 years ago and before. That He is still good. He is still merciful. He is still big and awesome. And He still cares. Because he was the same yesterday as he will be today 
and he will be forever. That's my God. Pray with me.